Let me invite you to find a Bible uh, and to turn there with me to Matthew chapter 6, one of the gospel accounts, the very beginning of the New Testament. Um, You will be greatly benefited if you read along with me. We're going to be tied to the text as we always are, and I think you will find it helpful if you see that you do not have to take my word for the things that I'm trying to communicate to you. Um, If you've not been with us or been with us only sporadically for some time, then uh, let me give a little preface. We're teaching right now through what is typically known as the Sermon on the Mount. It begins in Matthew chapter 5, as Jesus sees the crowds and he goes up onto the side of a mountain, some sort of natural theater or amphitheater, and he sits down and his disciples come to him and he opens his mouth, it says, and he begins to teach them. And this is the sermon that he declares. It's a profound sermon, and it's a profoundly practical sermon. We've made our way now through the demand for righteousness, that we be salt and light and live a life of righteousness that begins with the righteousness of the heart in Matthew chapter 5 into the practical application of that truth to our acts of righteousness. That is the righteousness, the deeds that we do, the acts that we perform in life before men. Um, That's a crucial connection to make. Because the thrust of the teaching, particularly in this triad that we see, we're coming to the last of them fasting tonight. But in Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, have to do with giving of alms, that is giving of our money. Then in verses 5 through 15, it is the issue of prayer. And it's praying before men and praying in a hypocritical way. And the last of the triad, or the three of these acts of righteousness, beginning in verse 16, where we'll be tonight, deals with the issue of fasting. But the thrust of the teaching in this triad that is really pointed, right? We've seen that. This is really pointed, uh, stark, sharp teaching. It is important because it clarifies for us what the demand for righteousness in chapter 5 means and should look like. Namely, that our righteousness should never become an excuse or an occasion for self-promotion or advancement. Friends, that's a tendency that we all share, by the way. So this is not like, look at what these horrible Pharisees were doing, okay? See yourself in this text and in your heart find this tendency and deal with it honestly. Uh, In the words of D.A. Carson, he said, this section, that is this triad, these three issues of public acts of righteousness, this section insists, he says, that our righteousness must never become confused with pious ostentation, that is with play-acting piety or righteousness. Friends, I think so much of our righteousness... I'm just speaking from my heart, like for myself here. So much of our righteousness is just play acting. We just want to look righteous. We just want to be seen as righteous. We just want people to be impressed with our piety, our self-denial. And it's not righteousness of the heart. And that's, and that's what he's been getting at. And so these three have been very, very similar. And because of that, we have treated them in a very similar way by asking questions of the text. Like, what does this text assume? What is this text prohibiting? What is it commending? What is it teaching? Uh, we're going to do the same thing tonight with fasting. Perhaps it's going to be a bit shorter because it's, it's dealt with very briefly. 
But he deals then with fasting in verses 16, 17, and 18. And we're going to follow a similar structure. We're going to ask, let's see how many questions I have here. Three particularly, though there's going to be some that kind of flow in and out. But number one, we're going to consider again what's assumed here. Number two, we're going to ask what exactly was being condemned about their fasting or what is it that made their fasting hypocritical and unfit. And then thirdly, we're going to ask, should we fast? And if so, how? We're going to consider the uh, positive commendation there in verses 17 and following. Um, Trying to make sure I have these things all laid out in the right fashion here. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we read Matthew chapter 6. God in heaven, uh, we, we need you now to open your word for us. God, we recognize that uh, in our sin and that sin which clouds our vision, that we are unable to come in and of ourselves to your word and to really get it and understand it and apply it to our lives. But that's our longing. We need your word, and if we need your word, then we need you to apply it to us. And so we ask that you would do that for us tonight, now as we read. God, that you would help us to see ourselves here, and that we would be willing to constrain our life and our actions and our righteousness by the testimony of what we find in these pages. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so beginning in Matthew chapter 6, verse 16, we read these words. He tells them, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now we begin with the question, what is assumed? And I don't want to rehash all of them because I've done it on two other occasions now, but simply to remind us all of the things that were assumed in the first two giving and prayer of these issues taken up is also assumed here. The connection of Matthew chapter six, verse one, to beware the warning there, to beware of practicing our righteousness before men, that it applies to this text as well. It's part of the teaching here in verse 16, 17, and 18. So what that means is it's assumed here that the disciples of Christ are interested in public acts of righteousness, that we want to live a life that publicly displays our integrity before God and points other people to him, right? A life of obedience to the things that he has told us to do. It is assumed here, um, uh, again, I don't don't want to rehash all of them, but, but those things that we have pointed at before, with regard to the first two, they are found here also. But with this text particularly, what is it that is assumed, at least it is assumed here, that fasting is one of those spiritual disciplines? Now that's interesting, frankly. Because the practice of fasting is not one that is contemporarily um, popular. I, I think I can safely say that. I will confess to you that in my Christian life, even in more than a decade of vocational ministry, it has not been a huge practice or spiritual discipline of my life. Some of you have asked me about fasting recently, and we've talked about those realities. But it seems to be assumed here that fasting is one of those spiritual disciplines that the disciples of Christ are engaged in and 
as with the others, that there is some sort of reward attached to it. Obviously, the reward of salvation, living a life of righteousness by faith, ultimately salvation is the reward for that. But since that that cannot be lost because of my failure, there seems to be something else in view, right? He teaches here that if we fast in one particular fashion, like the hypocrites, then we've received all the reward we're going to get. But if we don't, and we do so according to God's prescription and word, then there is a father, our father, God, who sees in secret, and he will reward us in secret. We're going to talk a bit more later in the sermon about what fasting uh, exactly is and try to define that for us as we apply that to our life. But, but let it, let, just let it be a note worthy of kind of putting in your mind here. This is something that is contemporary New Testament Christians like we must be considering. Here's the reality. The New Testament actually explicitly teaches on like systematically on the topic of fasting Very little. Almost none. However, fasting as an example, as a practice that we see Christians participating in, almost as an assumption of the text, is relatively frequent. I mean, a couple of examples that I can think of off the top of my head to give you are Cornelius is said to be found fasting and praying in Acts chapter 10. The appointment of elders in the New Testament church in Acts 14 is said to have been done through the acts of prayer and fasting, right? So this is something that we do see Christians participating in, and that should have some impact on us. But for Jesus' preaching and teaching here, what is it that he is refuting? What is it that he is condemning? What exactly, here's the question, was condemned about the particular fasting of the Jews of this time and of their leaders explicitly? Well, look at what he says in verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, so that their fasting would be seen by others. When did the Jews fast? We have, to, we have to determine that because there was actually a few occasions when they engaged in this practice, this discipline, if you will. But I don't think that all of those are in view here as being rebuked. Number one, the Jewish calendar, that is the Jewish religious calendar, included several specific or special times of fasting that were to be engaged in nationally or corporately. Every Everybody participated, or at least was expected to participate, or assumed to be participating. Usually, these corporate fasts, they came at a time in connection with the days of feasting, like the Day of Atonement or the Jewish New Year, okay? So some special or significant time on the Jewish calendar, it would be accompanied by a national or a corporate fasting. The second occasion upon which Jews would engage in this practice were special days of corporate fasting um, that would be called for when the circumstances of the community or of the nation were dire. So if the rains had not yet come, and they should have already come, or if there was a famine in the land or a drought, if the crops were not producing because of this drought, if there was a threat of war, Right? So, so you see, if the circumstances are dire, then as a nation, the religious leaders would call the corporate community of the Jews to engage in fasting, in prayer and fasting. And so they would do this again corporately. The, the third time that they would engage in this practice is the only that was individual. 
I think this is primarily what is in view here. Not exclusively, and I'll, I'll tell you why in a moment. But it's primarily this individual fasting, this practice where a certain individual for supposed moral or religious self-discipline would fast in one of a couple of ways or for a couple of reasons. Either in connection with a special request being made to God so that God would intervene on behalf of his family or in the life of his community or some trouble that was going on uh, in, in, his, in his business or something of that nature. He would commit individually to fast and to spend that time of fasting and prayer devoting himself to God as a matter of moral or religious self-discipline. The other is, uh, if there was some extraordinary act of repentance in the face of some found out sin. So that if some sin in life was exposed, then regularly these Jews would engage in the practice of fasting. As a sign of their self-discipline, but also of their extraordinary repentance. However, in both occasions, they were supposed to be individual engagements that were both to and for God only, right? The repentance of the heart was to be for God. The fasting was to be done in a way that time was devoted to God and God only so that he would uh, listen and hear and intervene according to the request that was being made. This is likely the one that was mostly being spoken of or in view of the rebuke here. Why? Because in the first two, everybody knew or at least expected that everybody else was fasting. So there was nothing secret about it. Now listen, certainly the sinful heart is more than capable of engaging in corporate fasting or national fasting in a way that brings undue attention to oneself or promotes oneself unnecessarily. I have no doubt that they could and that they did profane that act also. I still think that the primary view here is he's talking to his disciples, he's talking to them individually, he's not speaking nationally, and he's encouraging that they fast in a certain way. When you do this, you do it like this, not like those hypocrites. I think the problem is, as he says here, that when they were found in some sin, they not only wanted God to know that they were so repentant, they wanted to impress everybody with their piety. When they had some special request to make, they not only wanted to carve out time for God to see their extraordinary discipline and uh, attention to time before him in making their request, they wanted everybody else to be impressed with how disciplined they are, right? How, how much they're willing to deny themselves in order to spend time with God. So how would they do that? Well, they would deny themselves, normally food, but they would deny themselves something that was seen to be central to life. And they would then show all the signs of that denial. Right? So, so they would go on a fast. They wouldn't shave and they wouldn't shower. They wouldn't put oil on their heads and on their hair and on their beards like they normally would have done. They would have torn their clothes. Or as we see even in our culture today, the practice of putting ash upon one's head. They would have looked gloomy in their countenance. I don't know what it is, you doctors, but I've heard that it takes a whole lot more muscles to frown and to look gloomy and to walk around moping than it does to just look joyful and smile, right? 
But what did they do? They moped and they stared at the ground and they disfigured their faces, the language here, and they changed their physical appearance even when it was not necessary to the fasting. They could have fasted and then kept a clean appearance. They could have lamented their sin privately and then still had a joyful, uh, a joyful countenance before their brothers. But they did this purposefully so that everybody else would know, oh, they are fasting. And man... They're really fasting. And he, he must be really hungry. Look how, look how sunken in he looks, right? He's really denying himself. Look at how dirty and beat down he looks. Look how, look how grievous he is over his sin as he's moping around. You, you see how this began to be profane? That's what's being spoken of here. And when you fast, do not look gloomy. In other words, if you're fasting from food, don't go around looking hungry and telling everybody how hungry you are. More than likely, you're wanting to hint at them, well, you know, I'm, 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 I'm not eating for God here. I'm spending some time with him. Don't look gloomy like those hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces and their countenances so that their fasting would be seen by others. What does Jesus say about this? The charge is hypocrisy. And the penalty or the cost of their hypocrisy is that the reward from God is lost. And that the admiration of men is the only reward that they will ever receive. Friends, do you see that it takes what is a right and a good spiritual discipline that is for God and his glory. And it reduces it to utter vanity. That the only thing that's accomplished is me making myself look good to others. Me pumping myself up and perhaps even condemning and putting everybody else down because they're not fasting like I am. They're not near as dirty as I am. Look, they've had a shower. They're not near as gloomy as I am. Putting all of those people down wrongly, making myself look and feel better. That's all the reward that they get. That's the penalty. So let's also talk about the question, this this practice of fasting. If that is the problem, and he tells his disciples, when you fast, do not be like these guys, for this is fasting in hypocrisy. Should we then fast? Is fasting something that, as New Testament Christians, we should be participating in? And if so, how? Well, I think the answer clearly, according to verse 17, is yes. But when you fast, Fast, establish a certain method, and maintain a certain posture, okay? Just as we saw with giving and with prayer, he is not condemning the act itself. There's nothing wrong with giving. In some ways, even giving before men or praying or praying before people. It is all a matter of the heart. We have to have this posture of humility. But when you fast, he says, anoint your head, that is with oil. Wash your face. Clean yourself. Don't disfigure your countenance. Do this in such a way that you would not be seen by others, but you would be seen by your Father in secret only and rewarded by Him accordingly. As I said, it's, it's something that we see exemplified from Christians in, in the Bible on a number of occasions. 
what does it mean to fast? If I say, yeah, he's encouraging us to do this and to maintain a certain posture in doing it, many of us have maybe never fasted. And, and perhaps there's all these questions swirling in our minds practically, legitimate questions. What is fasting? I mean, does fasting count if I only fast from one meal? Do I have to fast from a whole day? Does it have to be from food, right? Those are all legitimate questions. And if we're going to seek to perform this act, this spiritual discipline of righteousness, and to do this in the right way, what is it and how is it to be done? Well, while we typically think of denying ourselves food in terms of fasting, it isn't that simple, I don't think. I think that there's even examples in scripture that I'm going to give you in just a moment where the language of fasting is used in, in an explicitly uh, not food-related context. And I'll show you that in just a moment. But it doesn't necessarily have to be food. Fasting is simply the self-denial of anything that is considered necessary or central to our life. For a distinct period of time, for the express purpose of devoting that time to God through prayer and communion instead of to ourselves and the gratification of that need. Well, it's kind of lengthy, but does that make sense? Something that is central and necessary for our life. Food is a perfect example. We need food to live. God gives us food to sustain us. Graciously, it's a provision that he makes for us. It's, it's, it's an act and a evidence of his grace in our life. When we go without that food for a meal or for a day or for a couple of days, whatever it is that we feel led to do, whatever structure we employ on that specific occasion, the purpose of that is only so that instead of giving in to my earthly need, I recognize that my need for God is greater than my need for food. That whatever, however central and necessary to life this need is, by setting it aside and turning to God in that time, I'm acknowledging that God is more important than this thing. That I need God more than I need X or Y or Z or whatever that is. So it's the self-denial of this thing for a period, for the express purpose of devoting that time to the God that made us and saved us and sustains us. It's like we talked about this morning. Is is God more real to us than the food that we need, right? The reality of God. Do we see those things as more real and necessary for life than perhaps the temporal things that we can put our hands on? The reality is it can be from a meal. But look, I have to confess to you, one of my struggles with fasting has been that it is nothing for me to miss a meal. Those of you who work with me and spend time with me, you know that. You can look at how scrawny I am and you can see that God doesn't, I don't require as much food from the Lord to be sustained as most normal people do. It's not that big of a deal for me to not eat today or until I get home at dinner or whatever the case may be. Now that doesn't mean that I can't fast from food. It just means that there may be things in my life, just the way that I made, the way that God's wired me, that I need, that are more central to that moment and my satisfaction that day than food. Friends, it doesn't have to be food. Anything that we choose to set aside can be set aside for a time, for the purpose of acknowledging to God, you are more precious than this. If I want you to act, if I want you to intervene, if I want you to forgive, I'm going to show you that I believe that you're real and that you're more real and more necessary than whatever this is. 
If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you find an example of this. That's a sensitive topic. I'm going to try to be sensitive here. It's in the context of marital relations. The intimacy between husband and wife, those that have been called to marriage. But turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I want you to look and see this with me. I think this is important. This is one of the only other places in the New Testament where the explicit language of fasting is even given or used. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, let's just begin in verse 1. Well, let's not begin in verse 1. Let, uh, let's just go straight to verse 5. It's in the context of the intimacy, the relationship between husband and wife, and the necessity and the importance of of that intimacy to their relationship as the thing that they share uniquely with one another that they do not share with anybody else, right? As part of the covenant vows that they've made and committed themselves to one another as essential to their life together and before God, to their happiness, to their health, to the satisfaction of their life together in marriage. Friends, that intimacy is essential. And that's what the Bible holds it out to be. But look at what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5. Do not deprive one another except perhaps upon agreement for a limited time in order that you would be able to devote yourselves to prayer. And then many manuscripts have fasting. But whether the language of fasting is explicitly there or not, I mean, depending on the manuscripts, is really irrelevant. The exact same idea and the exact same language is used there. The denial of something that is central to life in some way. Something that we desire and that we need. That we are willing to set aside for a time in order to take that time, even together, husband and wife, and devote that time to the Lord. I think you see that clearly here. That's one example. I I share that only to share with you that it does not have to be food. One way you can accomplish this in your life is to simply reflect on those things which are most precious to you in the day. Maybe it's a hobby. You know, maybe it's a hobby that you seem to carve out time for every day. It gives you peace of mind. It helps you to clear your head. I love to go to the gym. Many of you know that. I love to spend time in the gym or out on a run or engaging in physical activity. Friends, I carve a lot of time out of my life to go do that. It gives me peace of mind. It helps me to think straight. It helps me to get my mind off the worries and concerns of the church and work and my family. It's a beneficial time for me. It's one of God's graces in my life. But you know what? It's something for me to set that time aside and to say, God, I need to spend time with you right now way more than I need to go to the gym and push some weight, whatever that or to go for a jog. See, see, we can sacrifice and deny ourselves those things which are central to our life in order to devote them to God. And it doesn't necessarily have to be food. But before we're too hard on these hypocrites, right, these religious leaders, these Jews, let's entertain the question, how are we guilty of the same hypocrisy? See, lest we think this hypocrisy is very far from us, let me, let me just ask you a few questions. I'm not condemning any of them necessarily, so bear with me. But why do you carry a big Bible instead of a small one? Friends, I've been on a college Christian campus where it was in vogue to be a Christian publicly. And there are many people who carried their Bible out of their backpack so thereby would know that they were willing to carry it in public. (laughs) Why do we do these things? Why a big Bible instead of a small one? I used to preach from a big Bible until my brothers 
jokingly rebuked me all the time, talking about I, I was, you know, holier than they were because I carried a bigger Bible than they were. They were just kidding around with me. I carry a little tiny Bible now. But, but, but why do we do these things? Why do we wear such nice clothes when we come to worship? Or maybe the converse of that question is equally as valuable. Why is it that you think it's so pious and so holy and so much better than all these people that don't understand to dress down and God doesn't care what I wear? What's the heart of these issues? I mean, and I'm standing here in a suit before you tonight. So, but but, but what's, what's my heart? And is it, is it a heart that desires to prepare for worship? To, to, to give to God something unique out of the best that I have to, 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 res, to reserve this time even for myself and in my heart to give it this kind of clarity? Why, why do you wear what you wear? When we sing, why do you sing so loud? Maybe the question should be, why do you not sing at all? Look, I've been to Christian conferences more times than I can count. It can be frustrating and it may just, it may just expose the judgmental, sinful nature of my own heart. But I have to tell you, like, there have been plenty of times I've been standing in the crowds of, you know, ministers and Christian leaders in these Christian conferences that you go to and they're all gathered together. And as the week goes on or the days go on or the service goes on, it, it just, it becomes a contest of like who is, who can sing the loudest and who, who can do the best harmony part and be heard the loudest over everybody else. And, and maybe that's done out of absolute genuineness. But friends, maybe not. Maybe like the Pharisees, we want to be seen as pious more than we want to labor to be pious in secret. Maybe the issue is we want to be seen as righteous and thought of as righteous while we secretly harbor the sin in our life behind closed doors. It's interesting here that the prescription for this is the same as it is for giving and the same as it is for prayer. The prescription is secrecy. When you do this, do not do it before men. Do it before God, whatever it is. Give in such a way that you're giving to God. It doesn't mean that you can't be seen doing it, but it means that you better be willing to consider this truth. There are a thousand other examples that I could give you. You can come up with your own, those ways that you struggle and uh, want to be seen. Friends, on the other hand, I don't want to discourage too much. Listen to me carefully. Praise God for Christians who want to be known as Christians, okay? Praise God that there is this desire, though we profane it terribly, but praise God for Christians who want to be seen as Christians. Don't let me discourage that in your life. Just be sure that you're not doing the things that you're doing either out of the fear or the desire of their affections, that is, of men. Let us do the things that we do unto the Lord. Let us be righteous for it will be visible rather than trying to be seen as righteous. I think that's the takeaway here. And I'm going to close by quoting from Sinclair Ferguson's little volume on the Sermon on the Mount. He put it so plainly. I love it. You ready? The takeaway here, he says, is Jesus says fast. Jesus says such self-discipline is essential in the Christian life. But Jesus says when you do, Be a normal human being. Take a shower, use some aftershave, and smile. 
Do your fasting before the Lord, not before men. Friends, that principle applies to fasting and to giving and to prayer. And it applies, and it applies to every other facet of the Christian life. Friend, let us, let us labor to live unto the Lord and to trust that he will vindicate us one day, that he will reward us one day, and that he will use our normal humanity and our genuine righteousness to have a huge impact on the other normal human beings that lack that righteousness around us. Let's pray. God in heaven, we love you. Uh, We thank you that you are doing this work in us that is making us like Christ our Lord. God, we, we pray that you would continue to mold and fashion us into his image. And God, I pray for every Christian in this room that you would encourage us to desire to look like Christ. God, help us never, though, to take that desire and to profane it into a, an occasion, an opportunity to promote ourselves. God, to advance our agenda and to have people looking at us and thinking we're so pious and so holy and so righteous. God, help us not to, deceit, help us not to seek rewards from men, but help us to live a life unto you, knowing that you will reward us one day. God, keep us from this hypocrisy. Let us lead lives of genuine faith and faithfulness. In Christ's name we pray, amen.